This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next 60 minutes, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture that you're studying or trying to discern how it applies uh, here in the 21st century. What does it mean to the original audience? And once you ask and answer that question, only then can you make the proper application for today. It's not what does it mean to me but what did it mean to the original audience? And then we can apply it to our lives. So people call with questions about Scripture, about ministry, about church, and there's several ways in which you can contact us. Uh, You can call us here directly at 843-525-1859. The 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. We do normally give preference to live callers, though if I'm in the middle of a question, you'll just have to wait until I'm finished, uh, and I'll do my best to get to you as quickly as we can. Uh, you don't have to go on the air live. You can simply dictate it, and we're happy to receive it that way. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started, Rick. All right, our first question is dictated. William from Stevens City, Virginia writes, By the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 46, we see that the animal sacrifices are reinstated. This seems strange to me since this sacrifice is at the temple during the millennial year of uh, reign of Christ. Uh, Jesus has already died, been buried, and resurrected as firstborn from the dead. He's our true atonement. He's our eternal propitiation for our sins, for those who believe on his name. During this time, Jesus will be here on earth and governing. Can you help me understand why God, through the prophet Ezekiel, declares animal sacrificial worship is again initiated and attention is not directed solely upon Jesus Christ? Well, that's a great question this uh, person asked from the state of Virginia. There is a lot of objections, I suppose, that are raised over the doctrine of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, The Bible does teach that a kingdom is going to to come again. Uh, Jesus said that we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he taught us to pray, and it's a literal prayer that we're praying for his kingdom to come to the earth. And some simply spiritualize that and say, well, you know, he's just referring to a spiritual kingdom now. And, and certainly those who are premillennial, they do not dismiss the fact that uh, there is a um, spiritual dimension to God's kingdom. Uh, there's a sense in which those who've been born again, he's ruling in their hearts right now. So we're not dismissing that, but neither do we spiritualize what God has plainly said uh, to say that there's no application at all for this today uh, in terms of the future millennial reign of the Messiah, because there is. And so it depends on how you interpret prophecy. Do you interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, historically? 
And if so, William, it's obvious to him as he reads it that this is something that is futuristic. If you just read uh, the prophet Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, uh, you'd soon discover uh, that there is a coming kingdom. The length of it is a thousand years. That's established in the New Testament, but the promise of it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Second Samuel 7, God said that someone would sit on David's throne, and it's a reference to uh, the coming Messiah. So how do you understand this text of Scripture, this temple? Some have said, well, this is a reference to the Solomonic Temple, or maybe it's a reference to the Zerubbabel Temple after, you remember, they were carried away to Babylon for 70 years, and they finally came back, and it took them a little while, but they got the temple rebuilt. Well, clearly, as you read the book of Ezra or First Kings or Second Chronicles, it cannot refer to Solomon's temple because the dimensions are vastly different. In fact, the dimensions of the millennial kingdom are so large, it wouldn't even fit on the temple mount today. But remember, when Messiah comes back, God is going to drastically change the geography of the earth. There are many passages that speak to that. But this passage has never literally been fulfilled in history. And yet, how were the prophecies concerning the first coming fulfilled? Literally, every single one of them, over 300, were literally fulfilled. And two, um, how do you interpret prophetic passages? Well, you know, do you just say, well, I think a good way to take it is literally, or, or do you go like Augustine and said, well, a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, it's just a number of fullness and you know, where you spiritualize it, and how do we know how to interpret the Bible? Well, God left the key within the Scripture itself. And so you see prophets interacting with each other, like in Daniel 9, he's interacting with the prophet Jeremiah, and he's trying to discern how much longer they would be there in Babylon, and then he reads in Jeremiah 25, oh, he said specifically 70 years, and that precipitated his prayer and fasting, and an answer came from God as to what he could expect. And so you see the Lord Jesus doing the same thing, and the apostles, when they interact with Old Testament prophecies concerning the second coming, they expect a literal fulfillment. And by the way, this question that he asks, I cover in great detail in my course on eschatology, and it has come up several times on the Bible line. But uh, Ezekiel, you might want to read chapters 43 through 46 because that portion of Scripture describes this future temple, as does Isaiah 66 or Jeremiah 33 or or Zechariah chapter 14. In fact, let me just go to the prophet Zechariah for a second, because obviously, without question, um, this text of Scripture refers to a future time. Behold, a day is coming. I'm reading from chapter 14 for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Uh, if you know this passage, it's in reference to uh, the coming what Christians sometimes call the Battle of Armageddon, though technically there is no Battle of Armageddon, as I covered in my uh, series on the Revelation. That's Christianese. That's some kind of uh, verbiage that we've uh, placed. There is a place called Armageddon where the uh, troops of the world will gather. Uh, the, the, the Valley of Jezreel 
is the place where the troops will gather from across the world, but the battle will actually be in Jerusalem. They're going to gather there, and they're going to head to Jerusalem. And the Lord, the Bible says here in Zechariah 14, 3, will fight against those nations. And it says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. And and so he, he describes... Um, the Lord Jesus coming back to the very place that he ascended to heaven from. The Mount of Olives is a very important place in biblical history and in eschatology and the doctrine of last things. This has never happened. Is this just nonsense? Is this something that we just spiritualize? In fact, he says, and in that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. Um, and so, again, he he's describing Uh, a miracle that will take place. And you can read Ezekiel 47, where that living water goes all the way to the Dead Sea, and it makes a sea in which absolutely nothing lives fresh. It becomes a freshwater sea, and Ezekiel describes the fishermen drying their nets along the shore. That's never happened in biblical history. But the prophet Zechariah and Ezekiel affirm that that is going to take place in the future. And again, this is all in reference to the second coming when he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Why is he coming back to Jerusalem? Because that's where Messiah is going to rule and reign from David's throne for a thousand years. And then in this same chapter, again, post-second coming, then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went up against Jerusalem um, will go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Ah, that's an Old Testament feast. It's one of the feasts of the Old Testament that God had predicted. And we are going to be celebrating it, the nations of the world uh, that survive uh, this battle. The unbelievers will be removed. That's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And so Jesus will gather the nations of the world together. And based on how they treated Israel by nations, he doesn't mean like the United States and Germany. He's speaking about the ethnic uh, derivation of a person, whether you're Italian or Irish or whatever your ethnic inter- your origin is, he's going to gather all the various kinds of peoples in the world, and he's going to separate them based on how they treated Israel. He said, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, uh, you've done unto me. And, and that judgment of these uh, people during that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, they'll be divided out based on whether or not they knew the Lord, and those who knew the Lord would be willing to care for the Jewish people, and those who did not know the Lord would hate the Jewish people. We've never seen anti-Semitism on the level that is coming. There's coming a day when anti-Semitism, you'll either love the Jew during the tribulation or you will want to have them destroyed, and that's what uh, the gathering at Armageddon is all about. The nations of the world said, "We're, we're going against them. But these people who are genuine believers who are sheep in Jesus' terminology. They're seen as worshiping uh, during the millennial reign. Now, so here's the the point of rub. The point of rub is if Jesus once and for all died for our sin, which is what the Bible teaches, then why does the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Zechariah, who I just read, speak of our worshiping in the future during the millennial reign 
doing some of the things that the Jews did, though I'm sure there'll be some amending to it. Uh, But we will offer animal sacrifices, as you read in the prophet Ezekiel. Yet Hebrews 7 says that a high priest, um, that we have a high priest who are not like those high priests to offer up sacrifices uh, first for their own sins and then for the sins of others because he once and for all offered himself. And through his blood, Hebrews 9 says, he entered in once for all to the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. And he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26 says. So those who oppose the concept of a future temple where animals will be sacrificed, they would argue from the book of Hebrews, what's the necessity if Jesus has made atonement once and for all? Well, um, understand, you know, here in Ezekiel, I've turned to Ezekiel 45, and I'm reading verse 17. It shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the drink offerings at the feasts, on the new moons and on the Sabbaths, at the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to do what? To make atonement for the house of Israel. And then a few verses later in verse 20 of chapter 45, thus you shall do in the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive so that you shall make atonement for the house. So remember when the millennial kingdom starts, there'll be some people there in their resurrected body. Old Testament saints will have been resurrected. Tribulation saints who were slaughtered during the tribulation, they'll be in their resurrected body as will the church who's already been raptured. But folks who survive the tribulation, they enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. They will marry and be given and married. They will repopulate the earth. And their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, just like today, uh, you cannot make a decision for your son or daughter or granddaughter. Each of them have to make their own personal decision for Christ. And one of the functions, I think, of this coming temple will be to really look and see all that Messiah was said to accomplish. I had a group of um, people on one of my trips to Israel, and we were out in the desert, and we we saw a reconstructed tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a teaching tool in itself. I mean, every uh, piece of cloth that's used, every animal skin that's used, uh, the arrangement of the furniture, how they camped around it, it all sent an incredible message. And the same is true in reference to this coming millennial temple. You can't allegorize this passage and say it's not going to happen. And those who do, they are in gross error not to believe what God has specifically said in his infallible world. word. And by the way, the, what I'm postulating here is not some minority view. Uh, some people who broadcast on this station, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Tony Evans, Charles Stanley, Erwin Lutzer, Chuck Swindoll, they all teach it. So this is not some weird, uh, obscure view. It's just something that God says he's going to have in the future. It's much like the Lord's table. Um, the Lord's table looks back at what Jesus has done. It's reflective. Uh, this coming um, sacrificial system will look forward. And in what sense, though, will it make atonement? Remember, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So when we speak of it making atonement, we're not talking about it taking away sin anymore when in Leviticus chapter 4, I'm reading now from Leviticus 4 in verse 20, 
It says, he shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them. And in fact, in four times in that chapter, it speaks of the priest making atonement. Well, in what sense did he make atonement? He obviously was not propitiating God in a permanent way because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But he made atonement in the sense that uh, they were set apart, uh, objects were cleansed, priests were uh, symbolically cleansed, all in view of what Messiah was going to do. So when you let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's clear that the sacrifices of the Millennial Temple in no way propitiate God, take away sin. But they're memorials. And look, um, I could have spent the whole day at that tabernacle out there in the desert and walk through every piece of furniture, its significance. I mean, there was incredible lessons, and I don't feel like I've even scratched the surface in my knowledge of uh, what God's tabernacle, ultimately the temple, represented. And so during the millennial reign, we're going to learn much of God's plans, and this will be an evangelistic witness, too, to children and grandchildren and the offspring of tribulation saints who are able to procreate during the millennium. Uh, This will be an evangelistic tool, uh, not only to them, but it will be an instructive tool as we ponder the wonders of the Messiah and all that he did on our behalf. So anyway, we could spend a lot of time on that, but you might want to consider taking the eschatology class. It's at searchthescriptures.org. Eschaton is last things, and so eschatology is the study of last things. And for you to know, like, the difference between an amillennialist and a premillennialist and uh, postmillennialist and all these things and why we even will have a temple in the future, these are things that are covered in great depth, and I think you'll find it helpful. So we've had a caller that's been patiently waiting. He jumped in after I began the answer to this question. So let's go to him now, Rick. All right. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Pastor Carberg. Yes, thanks for calling today. How can we help? Okay, my question is, I know there's a difference between karma and you reap what you sow. I have a friend that said that they are the same, and I cannot explain to her the difference between the two, so I would appreciate it if you could uh, kind of shed some light on how I, and I can explain to her the difference between um, karma and you reap what you sow. Well, uh, in Galatians, it says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. Um, And again, in the context, he's talking about that, look, decisions that you make have an effect on the crop that you bear. But karma, by definition, uh, basically says that some work or some deed that you um, enact will come back. Usually they always describe it in the positive sense, so that if a good deed is done, something good will come back to you. Um, And then it gets carried, oh, into various religious expressions in terms of reincarnation, rebirths, and on and on it goes. It's just like there's different denominations within Christianity and different stripes Well, there's different stripes within the whole karma movement. But let's talk about the difference. And by the way, this is um, karma typically 
uh, espouses reincarnation. And so when you do good, you get the fruit of that. Um, in another life, you come back in a higher caste system. And so it comes out of Hinduism. So let's be clear on that to begin with. And Hinduism is a pagan religion. So when someone talks about following karma and they're just willing to do just the slightest bit of research, they discover that it's rooted in the teachings of the various Brahmins uh, out of Hinduism. And I cover this a little bit in an apologetic series that I helped to write with uh, Ken Ham. And I was asked to do Zoroasterism, and Zoroasterism is deeply connected to uh, Hinduism, and there's a lot of parallels between the two because the two are, are linked in terms of their history and their genesis. With that said, we're talking about something very, very different. We're not saying, well, you do a good deed and it's going to come back to you in in a good way and somehow this is going to give you spiritual favor either in Hinduism or some even thinking they're a false view of Christianity. That's not what the Bible is teaching. And really the closest verse that would reflect what they are trying to say uh, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, what goes around comes around, and um, so you do a good thing, and it will come back to you. And, and that's not totally untrue. People who do good, who are kind to other people, they tend to get kindness back. But that's not, by definition, what karma is all about. Uh, this whole conceptual principle that originates in India is in reference to, you know, the law of karma karma and what it will mean for you in a future lifetime. But in Romans eight twenty eight, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so uh, the apostle Paul is trying to encourage these believers with the unchanging love of God and understand some of these people who had met Christ as their personal slave or a savior, uh, were being persecuted. They are under tribulation, distress, and famine, and nakedness, and peril that he describes in verse 25. And yet he is reminding us that even these things that come upon God's people because they're following Christ, in the providence of God, he's going to work them all out together for good. But this, by the way, is not some wholesale promise that any person can take and claim for himself. In fact, it looks like a verb in the English Bible, at least in most English Bibles, but uh, the King James here is actually a little more literal in that it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who the NAS and ESV and NIV and NAD and a number of translations say those who are called But the King James actually says to those who are the called. The word called here is not a verb. It's actually a noun. He's describing a class of people called the called, and that's articular. He is saying there's a specific group of people who are called the called, and God is working everything together for good. And he reminds us how that happens from this foreknowledge of God all the way to our being glorified, that there's an unbroken chain that carries us to heaven, and that God uses even what we might consider uh, hard things to walk through for our good, to shape us into the image of Christ, and it's a reminder of his promise uh, for glory. So, um, again, there are principles, like in Galatians 5, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. 
you know, an unbeliever can go out and start abusing alcohol and God's not mocked, that person is going to reap the consequences of that. It may break them down morally. It may lead them to adultery. It may lead them, leave them enslaved to the, to the drug and God's not mocked. Whatever you sow that you're going to reap. But to connect um, this in a negative context, sin, that's going to bring consequences. Because, you see, we tend to think that we're pulling it off and getting away with it. Uh, We just haven't had enough time to see the end results. If you plant a little tomato seed in the ground, uh, you can't come back in 10 minutes and look for a, a tomato. You can't come back in an hour and look for a sprout. Uh, the seed has to germinate, and that takes time, and then it begins to grow. So one, you always reap uh, later than you sow. Uh, you will always reap more than you sow. One little tomato seed will produce a, a little tomato plant that might put out 10 tomatoes on it, and you will reap more than you sow. So in Galatians, what he is referring to is that God is not mocked in terms of sinful deeds, You can break God's laws, but you cannot escape the consequences of breaking those laws. You will eventually see the result. Where Romans 8.28 is just reminding us that everything that happens there, the focus is not believers and unbelievers, but believers only to those who are the called, that everything under God's providential plan is working for our good. And uh, but it has nothing to do with karma. So when you think of karma, you should first and all, first and foremost, think of India. You should think of Hinduism. You should think of false religion. And it has nothing to do with Christianity and our getting something good in, in Hinduism in the next life. Instead of coming here in this life in a rat, I come back as a sheep, and maybe in the next life not as a sheep, but as a as a king or a prince, and, you know, and they've got all these various ranks. And that's why animals are sacred. That's why, the, you know, the cows are, are worshipped and, and all these other things because there's this caste system of progression. That's what karma is all about. It has nothing to do with the Bible or Christianity. There is a, one other component that applies in the same context, I think, and that is um, storing up treasures in heaven. Yes. Well, and that's true, you know, um, God tells us as believers we give an account someday, and the behavior and the choices that we make as saved people have eternal consequences. So for Jesus to say, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If there's not some future reward that believers get beyond heaven itself, then the command that he gives there in the Sermon on the Mount and many other passages that speak of a future accounting, I, I don't. it's not the great white throne judgment, but it's the judgment of the just. We often call it the, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, there are implications for how we live now in terms of the reward that we receive in heaven. Now, we go to heaven by grace. It's not earned by anything we do, unlike karma Everything that you get in the next life is earned in this life. That's totally uh, diametrically opposed to the Christian faith that says you can't do anything to earn or merit heaven. And that's consequently what your friend is confused on. Uh, That person has some view of meriting 
God's favor or some God that they may worship, but it's not the God of the Bible that teaches we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. All right, very good. Gina from Savannah emailed her question regarding Judges 3, verses 12 to 23. She'd like to know, what is the significance of Ehud being left-handed? The story could have been told without mentioning that fact, but I know that God has a reason for every detail. Well, being a left-handed person, this is an important text to me. And uh, I should add here, Rick in the studio is also left-handed. And so when you, um, you know, read of these left-handed people in the Bible, uh, it's, it's important. There's a tribe of people within Israel, for whatever reason, there was a bunch of left-handed folks, and it's the tribe of Benjamin. And the advantage of being left-handed was a military advantage. Uh, People tended to, you know, go after the opponent with their right hand in which they would hold the sword. And so when you were left-handed, you had a potential advantage over the person in terms of your ability to wage war. And so here it says, it speaks of the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And so um, you might also um, want to read Judges chapter 20 and verse 16. Um, but this guy, um, Eglon, it's a, it's a funny little name. It means a little calf in Hebrew. Uh, he uh, He's the you know second judge, rules 80 years, and uh, he plays an important role at this time in Israel's history. But every word in the Bible is inspired, and it's inspired for a reason. And I suppose it would be much today like speaking of a left-handed pitcher. He can throw the ball in a certain way that a right-handed pitcher cannot. And so when you have a southpaw, uh, he's got the advantage sometimes over the batter. So, But this is a military advantage, and I think that's why it's mentioned. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Ronald from Beaufort writes, or actually called in his, his question. He says, I've noticed many churches are increasingly only recruiting elders and deacons that have money. Why is that? Well, you know, if a church recruits someone on the basis of whether or not they have money, then that's a bad thing to do because that's not the basis by which uh, God chooses leadership in the church. The basis for an elder or a deacon, the qualifications are given in a number of passages. For instance, if you put passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20 together, you discover there's over 20 specific qualifications for an elder. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you couple that with uh, Acts chapter 6, where you find the record of the first deacons in the church, there are, again, specific qualifications for these men. Now, with that said, neither should we be a respecter of persons, and to say that a wealthy person should not be considered to be a deacon or an elder. God's not a respecter of persons, and some of his greatest uh, men and women in Scripture were wealthy people, but the wealth is not what qualifies them. God qualifies a person in conjunction with decisions they make. You control your spiritual growth in the sense that you have a responsibility. It's not 100% God and nothing at all, you know, where you just sit back and, and God pulls it off and 
No, there are steps that you take and acts of obedience that you choose that build the kind of character qualities that 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 speak of for elders and for deacons. And so um, it shouldn't be, well, we just want a guy on the board because he's wealthy. And sadly, sometimes in a lot of um, not just churches, but seminaries and schools, they, they pick very wealthy people. And I think sometimes the impetus behind that is that these wealthy people, you know, are going to give. And so they're sitting in a board meeting and they discover that they need $5 million and there's enough high rollers on the board of 20 that can, you know, write some checks and make it happen. Um, But look, um, when it comes to governing the local church, it's not a matter of whether someone is rich or poor, it's whether they're qualified. And if for some strange reason, the only qualified people were rich people uh, in that church because no one else met the qualifications, then you might have an all rich board, so to speak, or people who represent, you know, wealthier folks. But I I can't think of any instance, you know, where something like that has ever happened. Uh, So again, I I don't want to make a general statement here that all churches are increasingly looking for wealthy elders or deacons because there's about 300,000 churches in America. The average church is 75, and I doubt that is a general principle that is true, but you may have witnessed it maybe in a place where you've worshipped, and and if if that was the basis for selecting people, not the qualifications God gave, then, then that's really unfortunate. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Grant writes, I know the Bible is without contradictions, but there are a couple of passages that have been bothering me recently. First, Proverbs 16, 7 says that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. How can this be reconciled with Matthew ten twenty two, in which Jesus says, you'll be hated by all because of my name? Proverbs 16, 7 appears to be at odds with a great many other teachings in the Bible. Well, it's a good question. So when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, I've just turned to Proverbs, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So is the verse saying, I will never have an enemy? Clearly not. In fact, this Proverbs itself assumes that you will have enemies as you walk with the Lord. So you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I know what it does not mean, and I know what it cannot mean, that we will never have enemies, because Jesus said that sometimes uh, a person's enemies would come from their own household. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, if you turn to Matthew chapter 10, uh, you will see that Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. And if you have the New American Standard, and different publishers do this different ways, some put it in italics, and um, I prefer not to do that because the traditional use of italics was used to uh, describe words that were not in the original but were contained in the Greek verb and therefore implied or the context and therefore implied or sometimes added because it's too wooden and it would not communicate well from the original language to the receptor language. But I like the way the NASB does it in that it puts it in all capital letters. And so Jesus said in Matthew 10, I'm reading verses 35 and 36, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, 
and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And if you, again, have a Bible with marginal notes, then you could go out into the margin because it would tell you where that's coming from. So I've just turned now to Micah uh, chapter 7 because it's a quotation. Jesus obviously read the book of Micah and had enough of it memorized where he could quote it word for word. Uh, so here he he's talking about a time where my, he said, the godly person will perish from the land, the upright will be gone, and... Um, you know, the best of people will be like a briar and do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend from her who lies in your bosom. Guard your lips for son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Uh, so again, there's an expectation, but then he says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. So again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. So we know what it cannot mean. It does not mean either from The quotation I gave from the New Testament, which is actually a quotation from the Old Testament, the prophet Micah, the seventh chapter, we know that it cannot mean and it does not mean that you will never have enemies. Add to this, think about Jesus. If a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, was there ever a time when he didn't please the Lord? 100% of the time, with every thought, act, and deed, everything he did in his entire lifetime was pleasing to the Lord. But he had enemies. They ended up slaying on a cross. So it doesn't mean that we don't have enemies, but it does mean that they can be at peace with us instead of warring or seeking to destroy us. I think that's the thought here. Uh, They may still be our enemy, but they can choose peace rather than conflict. And you've got examples like that in the Old Testament with Abimelech with Isaac or Esau with Jacob. Jacob and Esau, I mean, there came a point with these two brothers. Esau hated them, wanted to destroy them. Um, but with that said, you know, they were able to make peace, and God gave Jacob favor. Why? Because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he can turn in whatever direction he wishes. And so, you know, uh, there are stories that you can hear, that you've experienced, where, you know, you might someone say, well, I hate what Carl Brogy preaches. But they might come to my aid if I were in trouble um, because while they may not agree with me, they might respect me. So this is one of those proverbs that needs to be understood for what it is. It's a, it's a proverb. And so what Solomon says here, unlike some proverbs, is not true in every case. And how would I know whether something's a principle or whether this is set in concrete and true 100% of the time? Well, it, it, it depends on letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And so there are some Proverbs because though they are not quoted verbatim, say, in the New Testament, uh, their principle is restated, and sometimes they are quoted verbatim in the New Testament. Like in Hebrews 12, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, is that, as a, is that a principle or is that a promise? It's a promise. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes it as a promise in Hebrews chapter 12. But this Proverbs needs to be understood as a proverb in the sense that You know, there's exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, uh, this is a principle that when your way is pleasing to the Lord, God can give even 
peace with your enemies. But it's not a full sale promise. I mean, you might be ended up being executed by your enemies. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, Blessed are you, not if, but when men persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you on account of me. For great is your reward that is in heaven. So there's not a contradiction. It's just understanding the kind of literature that Proverbs is and how to interpret Proverbs and and letting Scripture interpret Scripture because even within the Old Testament, we are acknowledging that a godly person can have enemies. And Solomon would not dismiss that. And all you have to do is read Solomon's life uh, and how it's described in the Kings and you discover he had real enemies. But this is still a general principle that is very helpful uh, to ponder and to seek God's uh, expression in your own life on. All right, very good. Andy from Savannah writes, in your sermons on the book of John, you comment, Peter is a great leader, but not a pope. I'm guessing you say that as in regards to a misunderstanding people have and think Peter as a pope. Myself as a Christian follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and not having a good understanding of Catholicism, can you offer some overall view? Um, can you offer some overall view Catholic verses of uh, uh, verses of uh, uh, Christian beliefs and background where the Pope came into play? Well, it's a it's a good question, and there is a classic text that the Roman Church would use. Uh, some of you have been with me to Israel. We're supposed to. We're scheduled to go in May of 2021. Uh, Right now, Israel is not open to tourist groups, and it may not still be open at that time. So it's very much, uh, we're playing it by ear. We haven't really announced it or promoted it yet because we don't know whether the trip's going to happen. But if you go with me to Israel, one place we always go to is a place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, There's a couple of Caesareas. There's Caesarea by the Sea. That's the place where the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, and he appeared before Felix and Festus and so forth. And then there's this place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that the people worshiped a number of false gods. And so Jesus, in this place of false worship, asks the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others (laughs) Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And the you there is a plural you in the Greek New Testament. And Simon Peter, he steps up to the plate and he answers, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, neither you or some other person showed you this. This was not some human ingenuity that was at work that allowed you to figure out that I'm the Messiah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who's in heaven, I also say to you, and the you here is singular now because he's basically speaking directly to Peter as the context draws out, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, when there's a important wordplay that is going on in the Greek New Testament, uh, really faithful, precise uh, translations like the New American Standard will note that for you in the margin. And so again, if you have the New American Standard and you're listening with an open Bible in your lap, 
or on your desk, you'll see right before the word Peter, there's a little number one. And right before the word rock, there's a number two. And since you're in verse 18, you go out into the marginal notes, and it notes that the number one refers to the Greek word petros, a stone. And then the second word that the number two is used, it's the word petra, and it means a large rock or a bedrock. So he's saying, I say to you, you are a stone. You are a small rock, Peter. And upon this bedrock, referring to himself, I will build my church. But this is the classic text that Roman Catholics use to defend the papacy. And they argue that Peter is the first pope. And then they take the verse that follows, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And uh, they say, well, Peter was given the keys, and he passes the keys down to successive popes. So if you go to a place where Peter is reinstated, it's called Tabga. Uh, If you go to uh, Israel, and it's actually uh, Bethsaida, uh, they're uh, just about a mile from Capernaum, less than a mile from Capernaum. Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus after he began his public ministry and he was rejected in Nazareth. That became his headquarters, and it's actually called his hometown in Scripture, Capernaum. When you think of the life of Christ, you should think of at least four major places, Bethlehem, where he's born, Nazareth, where he was raised, Capernaum, where he lived for three years. At least it was his headquarters, and most of his ministry was in the Galilee region, and then Jerusalem, where he Uh, died, was buried, was raised, ascended in the very city that he will come back to. And so they're in this place called Bethsaida. And if you go there with me, you'll see this chart of all the popes. And they'll show Peter being the first pope. And then they'll show Francis being the last pope. And they have a picture or a diagram or a name for uh, every single pope in Roman history. Well, how do they come up with that from this passage? They do so from what's called the Latin Vulgate. And so the Roman translation is based on the Latin Vulgate. There was a guy by the name of Jerome. And by the way, if you go with me to Bethlehem, uh, we go to a place where um, the traditional birth site of Christ, and what's really exciting in Bethlehem, if you can get into it, you can't always, because it's controlled by the Roman Catholics. But when they don't have a mass going on, I always bring them down folks down to the cave of Jerome. And so Jerome was a brother in Christ. He was genuinely converted. And he moved to Bethlehem and he spent 35 years of his life there. Uh, He had pretty much mastered Greek, but he needed to learn Hebrew. And he wanted to create a translation of the Bible. This is in the fourth century uh, in Latin. And it was basically the most translated uh, text of the Bible Uh, in all of church history. The Latin Bible was the translation that the body of Christ used for a thousand years. Well, that's great if you know Latin, but it came to the point where Latin became virtually a dead language, and it became at some point the language of the scholars. And so if you didn't read Latin, you were dependent on someone else who did to read the scriptures for you, because all of the scriptures, for the most part, were in Latin, wherever you went in the world. And that's why we have so many Latin terms in Christianity today, even the five solas that are on the stained glass window behind my pulpit and the sola that's on the front of my pulpit, sola scriptura, those are all Latin phrases. 
Trinity. That's a Latin word and so on. Um, so in the Latin Bible, there is no distinction here in the text because Latin is not as precise a language as is Greek. And so if you read it from the Latin Bible, you might assume, I say to you, you are Peter, a rock, and upon this rock, meaning Peter, I will build my church. And they would use this for the whole line of the papacy. And again, the Greek New Testament is clear. And even again, if you had someone reading you the Latin Bible and you were dependent on them and they read enough scripture to you, you could figure it out on your own that Peter was not a pope. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 3, it says no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, who's the foundation in the context? Christ. The church is not built upon a man. It's built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But if the only recognized translation is the Vulgate translation, which is the translation on which the whole Roman Catholic Church builds their dogmas, then you can come up with the doctrine of the papacy. Well, if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it, because in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder in witness of the sufferings of Christ. He put himself on the same level with other pastors. He's not dismissing that he was an apostle, but he wasn't the only apostle. Uh, You could argue there were 15 apostles total in the New Testament era, beyond the original 12, 15. With that aside, um, you know, he didn't distinguish himself as uh, like a super apostle, namely the first pope. And remember, all apostles are elders or pastors, not all elders or pastors are apostles. But he views himself as a fellow elder. And he's rebuked by the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul, what are you doing rebuking the first pope in the book of Galatians? So, you know, the whole doctrine comes unraveled. But they build these false doctrines that the Roman church builds on uh, a translation that is limited in its preciseness. And I think there is a reason why God inspired the New Testament in Greek, because it's one of the most precise case case languages in all of the world. And so Peter is given keys. What are keys used for to open things? And Peter is given the privilege of opening the door. He is the first one to stand up on the day of Pentecost and to preach to the Jews. He is the first one to preach to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and to open the door of salvation for them. So God uses Peter in a unique way. So I'm not dismissing that Peter was really a leader amongst leaders. Even amongst the apostles, Peter, James, and John were, so to speak, the inner three. Um, But that didn't make Peter the first pope. Christ is the uh, one upon whom the church is built, not on some man. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. We've got about uh, three and a half minutes left. And uh, Chris from Iowa writes, Hello, Pastor. Just wondering if you have heard or seen the new Christian TV show called The Chosen, and what is your opinion of it? You know, uh, my wife and I have actually watched a few episodes of it, and I'm um, I'm pretty impressed with it. Um, Jerry Jenkins, who I'm not real impressed with because he's led, you know, Moody Bible Institute down the wrong road, but he has a son named Dallas and uh, his son is uh, one of the key um, 
producers of this whole thing. They they filmed it uh, in Texas, from what I understand, and uh, they they do a good job. It's not directly from Scripture. Let me just say that. So if you're looking for a presentation, this is a TV series, and they've only completed one season, and it's kind of an interesting approach that they have. When you click on the thing and you watch it, they say, well, you are watching this today per compliment, and they list a name of the many thousands of people who have given money, tens of thousands of people. I think they raised like $10 million for the first season alone because someone said, oh, this is really good. I think I'll give them $50. And it might be when someone watches it that your particular name pops up, and you can even write the person a thank you note for having given to it. So if you're looking for a series that is word for word from Scripture, like the Jesus film, it's not that. Uh, But what it does do is it bases it on the Scripture, and they fill in a lot of the events between the Scriptures. For instance, um, uh, we saw the one on Nicodemus when he's converted, and Nicodemus meets Christ in Capernaum. Now, did he meet him in Capernaum? Could have. The Scripture doesn't say. In fact, if I were to you know, postulate a place that he would have met him, I would have chosen Jerusalem because it falls in John 3 right after uh, the many miracles that Jesus had performing after he cleansed the temple that are described uh, in John 2. So I think, too, not only is he a teacher, he's called the teacher of Israel. He's the teacher of teachers. Is it possible that he witnessed the miracles in Jerusalem and then sought Jesus out in Capernaum? Entirely possible. So they, they fill in the details, and sometimes, too, they squish the timelines and bring events together. But, um, you know, overall, I think they've done a great job. And if you've had Hebrew, you discover that, man, they did a beautiful job of infusing some of the Hebrew language and culture into the thing. So they, they, they did their homework. Um, and, uh, you know, so you have to take it for what it is. They use a lot of dark olive skin people. It's reflective of that region of the world. And, uh, they keep the Roman soldiers white because of their Germanic origin. And so it's, they, they really tried to do a great job and they've just got one season done. So anyway, well, look, our time is gone for the day, but we're so glad that you can join us for the Bible line. This is uh, always posted later on. Uh, so that if you can't listen to the question you submitted, you can always listen to it later online where it's posted on YouTube and uh, WAGP.net. Thanks for being with us today. God bless you and have a great day. A home.